You're listening to Two Girls, One Crossword. Wow, it's a big day for us. We are seeing cats later. Yeah, it's a big day. Um, probably the biggest day of the year. Well, mm-hmm. yeah. The second big... time we'll see cats in theater. Yes. Um, thank you, Chicago Theater Week. Thank you, Chicago Theater Week. Well, yeah. Is that how you got the tickets? Mm-hmm. Amazing. Because they went on, or that's why I got the cheap tickets. Cheaper nice. than usual. Although, well, they're cheaper than usual for the seats that they are. That's what, okay. You can still buy tickets for that price, but they're usually further back. Not that these are, like, amazing seats. I wish we could sit down in, like, orchestra, you know, because the, they, like, come the cats out. cats come out. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> I, we sat at the orchestra for Les Mis, and... I was just thinking to myself, like, wow, Matt has, first of all, he'd never been to see, like, a Broadway-type show before, but I was like, mm-hmm. I can't believe he's seeing not only Les Mis this week, but he's seeing Cats, and imagine if we were in the orchestra for Cats, because not only is that such a departure from Les Mis, but then have, like, the the cast to come out to the audience in this, like, laser light, laser light show, it was just, yeah. Well, when I saw Dear Evan Hansen, I got an email. I think it was like the day before, so it might be too late. But they were like, we changed your seats because I think they, um, you know, maybe they didn't have the bottom rows like filled up enough. So we were in the, we were like up in the balcony and then they moved us down like pretty close to the stage. But so far, no, no luck like that for no Kathleen. That would be amazing. Well, but let's you, manifest it. We're manifesting. We're going to get the email. They're going to move us up. We're going to run into the stars. They're going to say, you guys are amazing. Yeah. Cool. And yeah, in other news, um, you're listening to a podcast. Yes, uh, two girls. Sorry, usually I say the podcast. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't. I as soon as I started doing the intro, I was like, "This is Grace's thing." Yeah, I, and I was like, I, "Wait, should I jump in?" You should jump in. Okay. Um, I'm passing the baton to Grace. <laughs> Thank you, Malish. Uh, this is two girls, one crossword. I'm Grace Topinka. And I'm Chelsea Rowan. This is your favorite weekly podword crosscast. And sometimes I let my brain get ahead of myself. So, I mean, there's no, it's the rules aren't in concrete, but it just kind of, the you flow know, once is you start doing up. it different, then, then I don't know what to do. Yeah. I mean, the flow is weird because, you know, Grace knows what to say to get us kicked <laughs> off. And I know what to say to finish us off. So when I was like at the, when I was at the cusp of saying, the whole intro was like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say here. So <laughs> well, you sounded great. Um, I've been I've been wanting to tell you this little fun tidbit, but I was waiting to the podcast. So I watched that um, new documentary on you on Hulu Stolen Youth about basically it's um, Sarah Lawrence College. There was a student's dad ended up at the right. college and he kind of created not kind of he did create like this cult and he got basically his daughter's roommates to join this cult that he created and it's a very sad story and just also like a crazy story about how people's minds can be controlled mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. even people who you know no one is immune like it's not like these people were dumb right. some, one of them was like harvard went harvard for undergrad columbia for med school was getting her residency in psychiatry and she was like sucked into this cult but they kept calling it a sex cult, although the documentary didn't talk about the sex part too much. Mm-hmm. But they did talk about, like, what the cult leader, like, he was trying to teach them how to have good sex, whatever. And they were like, oh one God. of the things he said was the best music to have sex to is Gregorian chants. <laughs> oh, <laughs> Which M-G. Chelsea did a topic on Gregorian <laughs> chants. 
<laughs> but I, I thought of you. I was like, I have to tell Chelsea this. I did not cover the Sarah Lawrence sex cult uh, in the topic, but I did talk more about Gregorian chants. Um, wow. That's so random. I, honestly, I thought you were going to say elevator music, but so it was no. even more funny that it was Gregorian chants. So I've also done a topic on elevator music, which apparently this cult leader did not abide by. He didn't care about that. Maybe there's another cult. That yeah. Be careful. Elevator music. If you start hanging around people and they're starting to play Gregorian chants or even elevator music and then they start talking about sex, I think it's a red flag and it's time mm-hmm. to GTFO. Yeah. Anyway, thank you for that tidbit. That's amazing. Well, it's sad, but it's also really interesting. Yeah. I mean, the documentary is interesting. And now I'm like totally invested. It's like, would I join a cult? I really think anyone is susceptible to join a cult at the right time. Like if they get you at the right time in your life. And I think right. being sleep deprived is like a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I don't it's know. scary because mm-hmm. I feel like there are plenty of times when I'm feeling susceptible but thankfully i um i'm a homebody so it's rare You're that not i'm meeting out. cult leaders no i i my my meeting cult leader ratio has significantly dropped in recent years so that's a, another positive of working from home it really is <laughs> less susceptible <laughs> uh should we move into our poll yes ma'am Let what do we what do we got for this year for this week this week yes um, I asked, <clears throat> this was based on your Campgrounds of America topic. Oh. I asked, what's your preferred method of camping? Tent camping, RV camping, cabin camping, or not for me? Thanks. Mm. Um, and 44% of the vote was, or yeah, 44% of the vote was for cabin camping. Okay. Um, second place was no camping. Fair. Oh my God. Yeah. Third, with 28%. Third place with 22% was tent camping. And then only 6% said RV camping. Oh. I mean, to be fair, I feel like a lot of people haven't RV camped. Yeah, it's, I think you're... Less accessible. It's a, yeah, I think that's for people who um, just have the money to have an RV, first of all. Mm-hmm. Or like the drive to rent an RV for an extended period of time, which can be pricey. And you yeah. have to have the right amount of people, depending on the size of the RV. And that's, that's definitely a choice. Because mm-hmm. you're driving that thing every which way, parking it, the whole shebang. I don't even know. I how do you, you fill of... it with water? Do you have to fill? You have to fill it with water, don't you? Like I just can't even. Well, I think when you like park at the campground, you hook it up. There's like a water uh, hookup. Oh, right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I used to do a lot of tent camping when I was younger because I went to a wilderness camp in North mm-hmm. Carolina, and it was beautiful to be camping out there. But in my older age, like when we've gone to national parks and stuff, we just stay at like an Airbnb close by. I'm like, oh, yeah, this is nice. Because then after like yeah. being outside all day, you get to go home and like take a bath. Yeah, I, you know, I want to start camping again. Um, and Matt and I have tent camped. And I, I wouldn't mind tent camping for like a short period of time, like one or two nights. Mm-hmm. But like, I would prefer cabin camping in that cir- mm-hmm. circumstance. And even then. If we got, if we're flush, let's stay, let's yeah. stay somewhere with like a nice hot shower. Well, you know, a private nice hot shower mm-hmm. is what I'm getting at. Because KOAs, they got the hot showers, folks. They really do. They do. Um, yeah, that's it. That's polls. Amazing. So I guess it's time to hit and shit together. Yes. Cool. Uh, I'm going to start us off with, I think, hold on. I got two hits, I think, that I got to start us off with that aren't related to crosswords in that 
Well, they're related. You know what I'm talking about, everybody. You've been here long enough. Okay, first hit uh, is, actually, I've got three. We had a great time at the sports party, and I did, in fact, make a fool of myself. The Eagles did not win. Um, oh, yeah. Last, we haven't been had a long time. since then. It was fun. Yeah, it was a lot of We had a grand old time. Um, and the game had a lot more going on than I think any of us anticipated. It was fast-paced, lots of moving and grooving out there. Mm-hmm. You know, um, there's drama. There's two brothers on opposite teams. The coaches were rivals. Oh, just chef's kiss. Chef's kiss. See it. Uh, Grace and I started Learned League. The last time we talked um, on the podcast, we were talking about we were had Learned League. It was like our first day or something like that was coming mm-hmm. up. Um, we have, in fact, started Learned League. And today, the day that we are recording, we are going against each other today. Right. Um, we don't have the results just yet because we haven't gone, but I feel like if Grace and I get any answers right from today's questions, we'll probably yeah, get the same answers right. Um, yeah, I feel like someone was like saying, you know, this is a good chance for your defensive game. I'm like, you're assuming that I get like, <laughs> I mean, I, I at least get one question right, except last or yesterday. Yesterday I, got zero. I didn't. I, okay. So I feel pretty confident about some of my question, my answers yesterday. I know. I was like, yesterday I was like, okay, I feel like some of these will be right. And then nope. None of them were right. And then the answers that were there, I was like, oh, okay. I, I get why these are right. I was shocked about the Broadway one I, that I answered wrong, to be completely yeah. honest. Yeah, I know. Um, for those that don't know Learned League, it's a trivia league and you get questions like every morning of the weekday. And then, mm-hmm. you you know, you get put against someone else in your league and Chelsea and I are in the same league and tomorrow or today will be our first time playing against each other. And you kind of like, well, I don't know. Don't want to get too far into it. Yeah, but yes, bet points. And yeah. so you could technically get more right, but get more less points in the person that you're playing against. And so mm-hmm. I feel like it kind of balances itself out in that way. And it actually makes it a lot less stressful than I imagined it was going to be. Um, yeah, I am humbled regularly, but at the same time. I'm not having anxiety about it well, like I, I like thought a, I would. A lot of people think that I'm good at trivia. Like, I've been invited to <laughs> be like, you have to come play bar trivia. I'm like, I'm not good at trivia. I know I have a trivia podcast, but, like, I'm really not that good at trivia because I can't remember, like, specific things. I'm only filled with random facts. The likelihood yeah. that I get asked a trivia question about that is basically zero. And I think with Learned Leaks questions, and, you know, I'm – I haven't watched Jeopardy in a long time, so I don't know for sure. But I feel like the way that the questions are phrased are supposed to be leading you towards certain answers. Or if you have any sort of um, trivia mind, you can like read the clue and get yourself to the answer potentially without even really knowing the answer, if that makes sense. Um, like yeah. There's like little signals for you to be like, oh, that's what this answer is. That's what this answer is. Um, I don't have those signals going off in my head. Um, no, I feel like I'm led. I know I'm being led to the water. When I get there, I feel like I follow the wrong person, you know? So, yeah. But it's a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Um, and then my last hit is that um, I went to the Art Institute of Chicago recently and I saw some of the Henry uh, de Toulouse Lautrec paintings from the Moulin Rouge, which we talked about in my Moulin Rouge episode. And it was just really cool to see, like, after talking about the paintings and seeing them online and talking about the Moulin Rouge to see the paintings live on air in person. Mm-hmm. I was like, wow, the vibes are immaculate. So if you're at the Art Institute of Chicago, hit up those paintings, take a look and listen to our podcast while you do. 
So that'd be fun. Yeah. Well, you're so worldly. I'm definitely something. Do you wanna? You why don't you take take us uh, to the next thing? Sure. Um. Okay. Let's see. The Thursday, February sixteenth, New York. New Yorker by Robin Weintraub, where I'm kind of going back because we <clears throat> didn't record last week. Yeah. Um, 62 across. We have the blank Arby slogan. We have the meat. The meats. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, okay. 43 across. <laughs> have Country you ever eaten bond- at, Wait, have you ever eaten at an Arby's? No. I feel like I may have eaten there like once on a road trip, but maybe not. I mean, I guess like people. I, I never hear someone who's like, Arby's is my favorite fast food restaurant. That's but yet, hilarious, but I know somebody. Exist. I We were doing a trivia game for Matt's mom. Not mm-hmm. to drag you, Matt's mom, who I love very much. But we had like a, you know, you had to get the same answers that they would write. So it was like, what's Terry's favorite? If Terry had to pick a fast food restaurant, which would she pick? And it was, I don't think Arby's was on anybody's radar. It was things like, you know, Salad Works or like mcdonald's burger king i was trying to think of some place that might have like a salad or something she doesn't really she yeah. doesn't really do fast food and when she flipped her card over and it said arby's i was honey i was shocked i was like i've never heard anybody in my life say that they prefer arby's over everybody else actually yeah i have a cousin who loves arby's and when we were little there's a story where he saw like an empty lot in miami and he wrote arby's like a letter explaining why that would be the perfect place to put an arby's and they actually did end up putting an arby's there and they wrote a letter back to him i don't know like <laughs> that is just hilarious. a story that is in my family that is hilarious yeah. well maybe we're missing out maybe we should go to an arby's um should we, we give it a try happen. sure i mean they got the meats they got the meats all right sorry Continue. Um, okay. 43 down. Country where the Von Trapp family lived in the sound of music, abbreviated. In Austria. Because it's Austria. Austria. But, you yeah. know, we love sound music here. Mm-hmm. We even have our first podcast together as a sound music podcast. Do Ray Me. Check it out if you want. Yes, yes, okay. yes. Um, 21 across. Fig blank. Insect that enters a fruit, pollinates it, and gets dissolved by its enzymes. The pig, uh, fig beetle? Or fig something? wasp. Fig yeah. wasp. I remember, I didn't know this at all, but the other day we were talking, I was asking Alex, like, what's the difference between a fig and a date? She was like, I don't know, but I know that figs, all figs have a dead wasp inside. And I was like, that can't be true. (laughs) (laughs) They get dissolved, I guess. But yeah, that's. Aren't figs and dates the same thing? A date is just a dried fig? That's what I thought. Okay. So yeah. Well. And then a prune (laughs) is a dried. Grape. Or no. That's a raisin. Plum. Plum. There we go. <laughs> I thought I thought Craisins was a brand that was Crazy Raisins. I didn't realize it was a dried cranberry. <laughs> um, okay. I love that for you. 34 across. Crew team's favorite Greek letter. Rho. R-H-O. Oh, LOL. Um, okay. That's all I got from that one. All right. I've got a quick one from the Saturday, February 18th New York Times by Cameron Austin Collins. I liked 48 across fatal attraction question mark and the answer was death trap which I thought was pretty funny nice. uh two down fruit popular in salads but not fruit salads and the answer was olive which i did know that olive was a fruit but i mm. it was it tripped me up but i also have a story when i was studying abroad in italy we were going on like a hike uh in the hills of florence to like a house that nathaniel hawthorne used to live in and 
the professor was like pointing out like all this different stuff and she pointed out one of the houses we were standing next to had olive trees and the olives were like cascading and growing over the you know the walls is very picturesque it's very lovely and of course one of the girls in the class which is an absolute bananas thing to do went up and started picking the olives off the tree and she wanted to go eat them and she was like no 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 no, don't eat them they're poisonous until like they're <laughs> finished do their whole process and i was like Lord have mercy. Oh so, my gosh. Fun fact, you'll not see I mean, maybe you would see an olive in somebody's fruit salad, but don't eat a raw olive, folks. Um well, and then not a they're always raw, aren't they? You mean like an unripe? Well, an uh, yeah, I think it's like Or did it have to be treated? The, I don't know what the process is, but whatever comes right off the tree is not for you. The I don't eat olives anyways, that's not an issue. I, I like an olive occasionally, but I'm not like I'm more of a pickle girl. You know, if I'm going to eat something Mm. out of a jar with a little bit of juice on it, it's going to be a pickle. Mm. Anyway, last thing from this puzzle is six down. Quote, nice. And the answer was right on, right on. I just thought that was pretty funny. Cute. Um, Yeah. What else you got? Uh... You're like, nothing. I got nothing. (laughs) No, no, no. I've got stuff. Don't worry. Um, Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. Oh, no. I meant to. Okay, I just have a few from this one. Um, the Wednesday, February 15th, New Yorker by Elizabeth Gorski. Was there a freaking Valentine's Day themed puzzle? I don't know I if didn't I did one. S- I don't know if I did one either. Like a little heart, something? Somebody. Um, 33 down, low cost tour guide, question mark. And the answer is map. <laughs> nice. Um, one down, PlayStation, question mark. And the answer was stage. Nice. Like a play, like cats that we're going to see like a, today. Like the theater? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's all I got from that one. Okay. I'll do the Monday, February 20th, New Yorker by Paolo Pasco. 18 across, quote, quit dragging your feet. And the answer was today. Like, right, today. <laughs> today, please. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I learned something. This is interesting and relates to our interests. 20 across. Classic car with a Coke bottle body. And the answer is a GTO. And so I was like, what does that mean? So Coke bottle styling in cars, and excuse any car fanatic, excuse me to any car fanatics out there, Coke bottle styling is an automotive body design with a narrow center surrounded by flaring fenders, which bears a general resemblance to a Coca-Cola classic glass contour bottle design. Hmm. I wish you could bring glass Coca-Cola into cats. I know. We could get a plastic bottle there. Yeah. It's not the same. The the plastic bottle is my least favorite type of Coca-Cola. Agree. Agree. I like a can, personally. Can before before Mm -hmm. the the, the plastic, for sure. Um, What else do I have? Oh, 30 across? One with a bill voted on by U.S. lawmakers, question mark. State birds. Nice. Uh, and then 37 down, one skewered at a roast, question mark. And the answer was a weenie. <laughs> <laughs> it really, it, it got me. Uh, that's all I have from that one. Um, the, I did the February 22nd New Yorker by Will Nettiger. 50 across, tests for students with something to prove. Oh math God. exams. Yeah, I was going to because... say mathematics. <laughs> uh 24 down video game character who collects the chaos emeralds and the answer is sonic and i just bring that up because when i was little playing sonic 
the chaos emeralds like it would be spelled out and i was like they're called chouse emerald <laughs> i didn't and then that's when i realized that that's how you spell chaos that's hilarious because someone like spoke it in the video game or my sister was like it's chaos probably and, I was like, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then 27 down robert pattinson's role in the batman it's bruce wayne i just love to see oh, robert pattinson in, in the puzzle yeah that's that all you got. All right, yes. this is my last one. The Tuesday, February 21st, New Yorker by Eric Agard. 43 across, detractors activity. Um, and the answer was hateration, which obviously <laughs> just reminded me of the MJB song. Mm-hmm. Don't need no hateration, etc., cetera, mm-hmm. etc. Cetera. Well, that's not the name of the song. I don't in remember this the name. Dancery. Of the yes, in this dancery. <laughs> what is it? Oh, let's get it percolating yeah. while you're something <laughs> There's a lot of vocab in that song yeah it's great um and then this is for grace and also sort of related to henry toulouse de la trek uh and moulin rouge six down flavor in absinthe anise anise star anise which is why i don't like it because it has that black licorice taste and it's exactly why i do yep this girl uh, and then I learned something new. 13 down, form of online trolling named for a pinniped. First of all, I didn't know a pinniped yeah, was like a, a type of... Is. It's like a type of animal. Mm. Um, like a group, a type of... Like a category of animals. The answer is sea lioning. And I was like, what the hell is sea lioning? And I know what this is, but I didn't know this was the term for it. So I'll just read you like what it said on Wikipedia. Sea lioning is a type of trolling or harassment that consists of pursuing people with relentless requests for evidence, often tangential or previously addressed, while maintaining a pretense of civility and sincerity. I'm just trying to have a debate and feigning ignorance on the subject matter. Mm. We've all been in a conversation with somebody like that. We've all seen conversations like that happen on various podcasts or news round tables. Mm-hmm with specific figureheads etc so i was like oh i learned something new like i knew that that was like a thing that Mm -hmm. people did i didn't realize it had a specific name yeah maybe that's because these pinnipeds these sea lions are persistent to no avail who knows yeah i don't know what the sea lions did to deserve that but (laughs) (laughs) yeah somebody get the sea lions pr team on the phone and let's fix this that's what i got Um... Well, let's flip the coin then. All right, I'm going to flip the coin. I'm flipping the coin now. (gasps) It's heads. Fine. It's me. Today we are living through the fourth industrial revolution, as Klaus Schwab argues, thanks to such innovations as 5G wireless, 3D printing, genetic editing, smart sensors, self-driving vehicles, and the Internet of Things. Yet these new technologies and the workplace automation they bring threaten to cause large-scale unemployment and deeper economic inequality. The merger of biology and technology, of human consciousness and artificial intelligence, entailed by these innovations, recalls the axiom attributed to Arthur C. Clarke, quote, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic, end quote. Whether the magical technology of the fourth industrial revolution turns out to be a boon or bane to humanity remains to be seen. But one thing is certain, now is not the first time that humans have experienced economic disruption during periods of rapid technological change, altering the lives of workers and consumers of the world and causing backlash, end quote. 
I'm just okay. setting you guys up here. And that comes from a article on the Ohio State University's publication called Origin, published in 2021 by Matthew Smith. The article is called The Fourth Industrial Revolution and the Ghosts of Ned Ludd, which brings me to my topic today, Ned Ludd, from mm. the Monday, February 20th, New Yorker by Paolo Pasco, 11 Down, legendary textile worker whose name is now associated with technophobes. The answer is oh, Ned Ludd. Like Luddites. Like Luddites, exactly. So if you don't know who the heck Ned Ludd is, if you're not familiar with the Luddite movement, you're about to learn some shit today, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, so who the heck is Ned Ludd? What does it have to do with the Fourth Industrial Revolution? We're not really going to get into the various industrial revolutions, but I really liked that quote because I feel like it set us up to understand we're going to talk about Ned Ludd and the original Luddite you know, movement, but how that can kind of translate to what we're currently experiencing in our own technological advancement era. You know, all these things are changing, automation, AI, chat, whatever, GPT, all these things that are coming out. And how does that change people's lives as it relates to, you know, economics, their income, Mm -hmm. their jobs, all this stuff. Okay. So first we've got to head back to the late 18th uh, century. Britain. The year is 1779. There's a man named Ned Ludd. He's a young apprentice weaver from Anstey near Leicestershire, England. Sorry, Brits. Um, And he is working at a stocking frame when his superior, like, reprimands him for knitting too loosely. Ned was then ordered to, quote, square his needles, which I guess means to, like, knit better. And in a fit of rage, Ned decided to grab a hammer and destroy the whole machine instead of fixing his knitting, you know, squaring his needles, as it were. Mm -hmm. Um, So what the hell? Why was he just so grumpy about this if he needed to do it better? So Ned was protesting against textile manufacturers who used new steam engine powered machines. They were known as frames uh, that increased product production in hosiery and knitwear industries, but needed fewer people to do the work. The factory system was also making it uneconomic for people to work on hand-powered frames in their own homes um, and had been the traditional pattern of making knitwear for, you know, many, many years. So Ludd destroying two stocking frames was his form of protest against the industrialization of the textile industry. But here's the rub, okay? Ned Ludd was likely not a real person. Okay. (gasps) It's fake, legendary textile worker. A myth, yeah, exactly. But his bravery, legendary or not, gave way to a movement, an organization, if you will, uh, and the organization, they called themselves roughly the Luddites, okay? So Luddites, in like modern terms, uh, like the crossword clue mentions, simply means like technophobes, or at the very least, the word is used to describe someone who is opposed to or resistant to new technologies, right? That's kind of like, if you're called a Luddite, most of the time it's, you're called a Luddite derogatively, as mm-hmm. like, you know, someone who doesn't know how to turn off the motion smoothing on their their television, or how to fax something or change the, something on a PDF, like you would call mm-hmm. someone a Luddite, potentially. But Luddites weren't all bad at the beginning. Um, So 
But while Ned Ludd supposedly broke two frames in 1779, the real Luddite movement didn't officially begin until 1811. So war with France and Napoleon Bonaparte's continental system effectively sealed the continent of Europe against export from Britain. So in order to cut their costs and make it more feasible for exports to be sent to other markets, industrialists in Britain had no option but to produce more by using fewer workers on lower wages that meant installing large steam-driven machines. Plus, a series of food harvests during the period from 1808 to 1812 caused food prices to rise, so there was genuine hardship in the population as a whole. So these things were kind of happening concurrently, Mm -hmm. Um, and many people felt that um, they had to do something to fight against the forces that were oppressing them, mill owners and other industrialists in the government, uh, and they saw the machines in the factories as the root cause of their distress. So their actions, the Luddites' actions began in 1811 when they started sending letters to mill owners in Nottinghamshire and Leicestershire, um, and the letters were threats to the mill owners to remove the machines or see them destroyed. Of course, the mill owners did not remove the machines. Why would mm-hmm. they listen to these rowdy, you know, knit yeah, they workers? they probably spent a lot of money on these machines, too. Exactly. They're like, the money I spend on these machines is more important than whether or not you have food on your table yeah. and your kids have new shoes to walk 10 miles to school every day. Okay, so they didn't, they didn't take out the machines. And so the Luddites followed through with their threats. Bands of men broke into factories at night and smashed the machines with sledgehammers. They called themselves the General's Army, the general being Ned Ludd. Ned Ludd was like this mythical figure, their mythical leader Mm -hmm. um, at this time. Um, So yeah, they called themselves the General's Army. And these armies sometimes consisted of hundreds or even thousands of men marching in disciplined order through the streets on their way to the factory. Um, uh, They soon expanded their actions north to the mills of uh, Lancashire and Yorkshire, where the woolen and cotton garment industries were based. Eventually, the government brought troops in to protect the factories, and they arrested the demonstrators. Uh, And one estimate was that there was 12,000 soldiers diverted from the France war effort to stop the Luddites from destroying, you know, mill machines and stuff. And then in 1812, Parliament passed the Frame Breaking Bill. The bill made the destruction of machinery punishable by hanging. So there was, of course, opponents of the bill. Most people were in support of it, but there was one opponent, Lord Byron. uh, And this is, I'm going to give you two quotes from his speech to the House of Lords saying, like, what the hell, we shouldn't pass this bill. Quote, nothing but absolute want could have driven a large and once honest and industrious body of people into the commission of excess so hazardous to themselves, their families, and their community. So he's trying to like put in perspective, like, what would bring people to do something so drastic? You know, like, hello, Mm -hmm. they're not doing this for fun. The next quote. You may call the people a mob, but do not forget that a mob, too, often speaks the sentiment of the people. How will you carry the bill into effect? Can you commit a whole country to their own prisons? Will you erect a a gibbet in every field and hang men like scarecrows? Basically, he was saying, like, there are so many people that are affected by this economic crisis that we're in. These people are Mm -hmm. driven to the absolute brink. And if you start hanging these protesters, you're going to be hanging a lot of people, like Mm -hmm. more people than you think that you're going to be hanging. And then it's like, what, we're not going to have any people to work in our factories and so on and so forth. So he's trying to just like bring awareness to the House of Lords. The House of Lords was like, what are you talking about? Like, hmm. So let's see. Um, So 
on one hand, it could be said that destroying the new machines, uh, by destroying the new machines, they were depriving the operators of those machines of their living. But it was also true that the goods produced in the factories were often of much lower quality than those of the hand uh, loom weavers, uh, who were the craftsmen who were protesting the introduction of these new machines in these factories. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, the Luddite movement was largely futile. The economic necessity was driving rapid industrialization, and the smashing of machines was only delaying the changes. And then on May 11th, 1812, the Prime Minister, uh, Spencer Percival, was assassinated. And while it was soon revealed that his assassin was like, had totally private motives, people Mm -hmm. kind of looked towards anything any violent action that could be a threat to the government is no good. Mm-hmm. Um, and people could still recall the French Revolution. Like, people were on edge, and they're like, this is no good. We have to squash this now. Um, and so many Luddite leaders were either hanged or sent to Australia. And Grace actually did a topic on the penal colonies of Australia, mm-hmm. so check that out if you're interested. Um, I'm going to just do a couple anecdotes of Luddite incidents to give you more context of like how these events went down mm-hmm. um in april of 1812 approximately 2,000 protesters mobbed a mill near manchester the owner ordered his men to fire into the crowd killing at least three and wounding 18 and then the next day soldiers killed at least five more protesters and then earlier that same month a crowd of about 150 protesters exchanged gunfire with defenders of a mill in yorkshire and two luddites died the luddites then retaliated by killing the mill owner who had previously been heard saying, like, essentially, like, I'm going to, he said, what did he say? Um, he boasted that he would ride up to his britches in Luddite blood. So he was, like, ready to kill oh these Luddites. Mm-hmm. Well, the Luddites got him in the end. <clears throat> and then in Yorkshire, Luddites attacked frames with massive sledgehammers called Great Enoch after a local blacksmith who had manufactured both the hammers and many of the machines that they intended to destroy. Enoch made them, uh, so Enoch... Enoch shall break them is kind of like what their slogan was when they went Mm -hmm. to destroy those machines. So part of the reason the Luddite movement was so popular was due in part to the fact that the textile workers had no legal protections or safety nets uh, in the form of trade unions. So there was a couple things that were going on politically. The Combination Acts of 1799 and 1800 made trade unions illegal. So any such activity was driven underground. Um, And eventually these laws were repealed in 1824, but the process of collective bargaining was illegal until 1860. And even so, plenty of people viewed the Luddite movement as a good reason for suppressing trade unions. So it was like very complicated. Um, Nevertheless, the Luddites ultimately showed that working people needed to be able to deal with their problems in a constructive way uh, around a negotiation table without being forced to take extreme measures. And so that brings me to modern times. Luddites nowadays are known as technophobes or just adverse to technological advances. Uh, We all know somebody in our lives that is like this. Um, Mm But that's not how it all started, right? I'm going to read you a quote from a Smithsonian article, What the Luddites Really Fought For, by Richard Conniff from 2011. Quote, Despite their modern reputation, the original Luddites were neither opposed to technology nor inept at using it. Many were highly skilled machine operators in the textile industry, nor was the technology they attacked particularly new. Moreover, the idea of smashing machines as a form of industrial protest did not begin nor end with them. Mm-hmm. End quote. So this isn't the first time, but this was like a big movement. The Luddites were one of many groups at the time, from and even from the past and even currently, uh, that were challenging the emerging capitalist system, which centered on efficiency, maximal productivity, and ultimately human redundancy. 
Luddites uh, instead championed other human values of finely honed craft skill, community, worker solidarity, and a living wage. Uh, yeah, so that's Luddites. They're more for, like, workers' rights. Exactly. It was not anti-technology. It was mm-hmm. more anti-capitalist. But I don't yeah. think that that's what they were thinking at the time. They were just trying to, like, have their own crafts protected and be treated like people, not redundant. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, pro- like, you know, technological advances is a double-edged sword. You know, it's incredible all the things that we have access to now with technology. But with automation people start losing their jobs and it kind of yeah. starts feeling a little dystopian really mm-hmm. when you go to like a grocery store or a restaurant and you have a robot delivering your your food to you rather than like a human you know so it's crazy well why don't we just have robots do all the jobs then no one has to work that's what i'm thinking and we just live on like a commune that works for me um I always laugh, though, when I see the robot. Well, I don't see them very... I see videos of robots at grocery stores. I actually yes. don't go to a grocery store that has a robot, but I saw yeah. one of one trying to escape. <laughs> like, he was, like, in the parking lot. <laughs> and, like, yes. a manager had to come out and bring him back in. Yeah, Just and I... Free. Let him go. I've seen a lot of things about people chatting with AI and all this stuff. And <clears throat> AI... The, the, the concern with AI is, you know or computers in general, it's like, will they have ever gained sentience? And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know if this is even possible, but people have conversations with AI and the AI starts to exhibit human qualities and they're talking about falling in love or, yeah. you know, wanting to be free and wanting to be sentient and, like, having plans and thoughts and wanting to go to travel. And it's like, I'm like, it's ah, freaky. It's, but it's like freaky deaky. Here's the thing. We cannot make AI robots look like a look human. If Detroit like become human, because if Detroit that's... become human told yeah. us anything. <laughs> that makes it way more complicated. I, I don't will know. not deal with a Jesse James looking no. robot walking around with his two different colored eyes. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. But you know that's what it would be used for, like immediately. Of course. Like some type of sex thing. Of course. There's already huge conventions about sex dolls, and there's no AI technology currently used with them. I'm sure that there are plenty of developmental things happening now with that, but... Yeah. Well, something to look forward to. Yay! Um, <laughs> and that's that's Ned Ludd and his Luddite family. Luddites would... They would just use a regular sex doll, I think. <laughs> you know? My topic comes from the Wednesday, February 22nd New Yorker by Will Nettiger, 21 across, color named for a duck. And the answer is teal, but I am doing a topic on colors and how colors get their name. Oh. There's a few different like things that we'll go over. First, I'm going to talk about like color categories in general because it's very interesting, like across different languages and stuff. And then I'll talk to more. I'll talk a little bit about how some, like, um, specific colors have gotten their name that are outside of, like, you know, general blue, green, whatever. Okay. So I got um, this, the first part, I got all this information from an article on Vox.com called The Surprising Pattern Behind Color Names Around the World by Christoph Haberson. So let me ask you, what is the color of the sky? Blue. It's not a trick question. Okay. What about a teddy bear? Brown. And what about Tinky Winky? Uh, Tinky Winky's yellow? No, he's the gay one. Purple. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. Sorry. So in English, I had to go into my, my mind palace for a second. <laughs> in Eng- I was trying to think of like what I should have said eggplant. Anyways, in English, you'd probably say blue, brown, and purple. But for example, if you were speaking in the Wubei language, you would have used one word for all three. So different languages have different color categories, basic Ooh. color categories. So English has 11. Black, white, red, green, yellow, blue, pink, gray, brown, orange, and purple. Russia has 12. You're like, what's the 12th one? Well, yeah. they have two different categories for blue. They have light blue and dark blue. Interesting. Separate categories. Okay. Um, but there's some languages that only have three color categories. It's wild. And, you know, does that mean that they only see, like, three colors? No, they just have broader spectrums per color. So, like, in English, we have blue, and we, you know, can tell the difference between the blue of an M&M and, you know, the light blue of a sky, but in Russia, it's differentiated. So, when you have, Mm -hmm. like, you know, we're all still seeing the same blues, but some cultures, they just combine way more colors into one label. Interesting. So how are color categories decided? Yeah. Well, people have been noticing this type of stuff for a while. Like in 1858, William Gladstone, who would later become the British prime minister, published a book about ancient, um, the ancient Greek works of Homer. And he pointed out that Homer didn't mention that many different colors in his works. For example, he used the word purple to describe blood, a dark cloud, a sea wave, and a rainbow. Gladstone did not find any references to the colors blue or orange at all in Homer's works. Wow. In the 1960s, two linguists, Brent Berlin and Paul Kay, set out to find more answers. They collected color naming data from 20 different languages and found some patterns. So they found that if a language only had two color categories, it was always black and white or dark and light. And if there was a third color, it was always red. So if a language only has three color categories, it's definitely going to be black, white, and red. Wow. Then the fourth and fifth categories were always green or yellow interchangeably. Sixth was blue. The seventh was brown, etc. This wow. is ca- called the color hierarchy. Berlin and Kate argued that certain colors were more salient. So they suggested that cultures start by naming the most salient colors, um, bringing in new terms one at a time. So black and white are the most salient, then red, etc. So. But wow, that's were, so interesting. Isn't it? But yeah. there were issues with this research. So people said, like, well, you only pulled 20 languages. They're all from industrialized societies. And you also have kind of um, a narrow definition of what makes a color category. For example, in the Yeli language in Papua New Guinea, there are only um, three basic color categories, black, white, and red. But there are also words for various objects like ashes, tree sap, banana, etc. that are used as color comparisons and essentially cover all English language color words. So you can't Ah. really compare, you know, languages to each other because they all have different ways Mm -hmm. on how they describe Mm -hmm. color. Um, Like the Hanunuro language in the Philippines, there are four basic terms to describe color, but they describe more of a feeling than a color so it's four terms and they all are basically like make up a spectrum of light versus dark fresh versus dry and strong versus weak which is really interesting as someone who doesn't speak that language it's like a whole different you know your brain works in a totally different way to interpret colors yeah which kind of reminds me of the bilingual episode how yes you know if you speak two languages in your brain you know each language 
it changes the way you see the world around you, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, they did their first research in the 60s. In the 70s, Berlin and Kay responded to the criticism by doing a new study on 2,600 native speakers who spoke 110 unwritten languages from non-industrialized societies. And this study showed that 83% of these languages also fit into the color hierarchy. You know, that goes black, white, red, etc. Okay. So why does the color red, the like the word for the color red, come before a word for the color blue? Some argue that red is more present in the environment, like in blood, dirt, and fire. Um, but cognitive scientists used an AI software. Speaking of AI, oh my god, there's an AI software that mimics the creation of language via conversation. It's crazy. Um, they had two computers talk to each other, and they showed them like a color spectrum. And the computers quickly created shared labels for the colors on the spectrum. And if you want to know the order in which colors they, you know, created names for, um, they didn't, there was no black or white on the spectrum, but first was red, then green and yellow, then blue, orange, et cetera. Pretty close to the the, um, color hierarchy that Berlin and Kay found. But these AI computers, they aren't out in nature. So it suggests that it doesn't have to do with like what colors are more, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. present in nature, but instead the colors themselves. Mm. So red is maybe more distinct than any other color, than green, than blue, etc. Mm-hmm. So either way, it goes to show that we're yeah. all the same, even the AI computers. I'm like looking around. I'm like, do I have anything red here? I've got like this red New yeah. Yorker tote, but I'm like, I don't have any red. But it's, inter- yeah, it's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's kind of like color category across languages, which is very interesting. Color but hierarchy. That's very cool. Yeah. What about specific color? Um, the color teal is named after a duck called the Eurasian teal, which has a teal-colored stripe on its head, and the word is often um, used to refer to shades of cyan, or is it cayenne in general? Right. But what about other color names? So these are from an article on Mental Floss called The Quick Ten, How Ten Colors Got Their Names by Stacey Kondrat. Um, so the color Alice Blue is named after Teddy Roosevelt's eldest daughter, Alice, who has okay. grayish-blue eyes. The Navy uses Alice Blue as one of the colors on its insignia. That's like such a move to have a color literally named after your eye color. Yes. Um, Okay, chartreuse. I love this color. This color is named because it was about the same color as a French liqueur called yellow chartreuse. The liqueur was named because it was produced by Carthusian monks whose headquarters, the Grand Chartreuse, was located in the Chartreuse Mountains in France. Ah, that's why it's named after liquor that was made in the Chartreuse Mountains. Okay. Um, fuchsia. Fuchsia was named for the color of the flowers on the fuchsia plant. The plant was named for Leonard Fuchs, a 16th century botanist. Hmm. Mountbatten pink was invented by Louis Mountbatten of the British Royal Navy during World War II. Mountbatten noted that a particular shade of pink was just about the color of the sky during dawn and dusk and would be ideal for camouflage during those hours. Hmm. Mountbatten is the the name. I think it's a royal name. Um, Queen Elizabeth II's husband. What's his name? Was from the Mountbatten family, I believe. Just throwing out some royal <laughs> facts for you all, as I am wont to do on occasion. Classic cheese. Um, <clears throat> Prussian blue, also called Berlin blue, because the mm. synthetic pigment was accidentally discovered in Berlin in 1704. It became Prussian blue when the Prussian army dyed their uniforms with the pigment. Cute. I'm sorry, that's really cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, Tyrian purple, aka royal purple, 
was ah. first used by the ancient Phoenicians from the city of Tyre. The dye was so expensive that only the very wealthy could afford it, hence royal purple. Greek legend says that Hercules' dog discovered Tyrian purple when he ate one of the snails that produces the dye. Right, this is the color produced by the snails. Mm-hmm. Um, cerulean. So this name has been around since 1590 and probably has Latin roots. Ceruleus means dark blue, blue or blue-green in Latin. In turn, ceruleus probably comes from the diminutive of the Latin word Celum, which means heaven or sky. Mm. So basically, a lot of colors are named after locations. You know, sure, yeah. Places. Um, magenta. Magenta was one of the first synthetic dyes ever created, and it was created by accident by an 18-year-old chemistry student who was trying to create a treatment for malaria. He like <laughs> created this thing, and then it didn't work. But he noticed that it like dyed everything. You know, this magenta color, and he couldn't get it off. He was like, "Hmm, maybe I created dye." So then he went on to like patent it and whatever. Wow. Um. But the, it was called Magenta because it was named after a bloody battle in Magenta, Italy as like a marketing ploy because, I don't know, people were really into battles at the time. Bloody battles at the time, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then Magenta is one of the, you know, colors that printers use. It's like Magenta, Cyan, yellow and black. Mm-hmm. So Cyan gets its name from the ancient Greek word Kyanos, meaning dark blue enamel. Hmm. But um, here are some other color fun facts from bestlifeonline.com. So in ancient Rome, blue was associated with the low working class, while wealthy wore white, black, and red, of course. Mm. Um, But once the 12th century came around and the Virgin Mary was depicted in blue, it started to become more popular. So Okay. um, Red is the first colors that babies see. Uh, Dr. Alexander Schaus, the director of the American Institute for Biosocial Bio Social Research in Tacoma, Washington, says that pink is a calming color. He says, quote, even if a person tries to be angry or aggressive in the presence of pink, he can't. The heart muscles can't, rate fa- can't race fast enough. It's a tranquilizing color that saps your energy. Even the colorblind are tranquilized by pink rooms. So many sports teams pay the vis- or paint the visiting locker rooms pink. That's hilarious. Mm-hmm. So it makes you want to have like a pink bedroom. Yeah. Um, okay, according to Monash University Accident Research Center, white cars are least likely to be involved in an accident resulting in death. Okay. The color car that's most likely to result in a fatal car accident? Black. Hmm. What do you think the most popular favorite color in America is? Blue. Correct. That is true for both men and women, but the second favorite color differs between men and women. Second favorite among men is green, and the second favorite among women is purple. Interesting. I would have guessed that, but mm-hmm. my favorite is my my favorite is green. Hands my down. favorite is I'm a green gal, and I always have been. Samezies. Um, okay, speaking of green, in the Middle Ages, the color green came to represent inconsistency or inconstancy, betrayal, and unreliability. For example, Judas was often depicted wearing green clothing. I knew Why? I was drawn to Judas. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, um, dying in green tended to be difficult and unpredictable during this time because green dyes from plants would create a faint and unstable color that would fade over time. So, oh. Um, in 2005, a study by British scientists found that athletes who wore red have an advantage over blue suited competitors. They determined this by examining the 2004 Summer Olympics, finding that across a number of different sports, competitors wearing red were more likely to succeed. So red Ooh. is truly the 
power color people. Red is where you need to be if you want to make a power move. Um, Research has shown that the combination of red and yellow boosts the appetite of the average person. Mickey D's. Thing about McDonald's, Wendy's, In-N-Out, Denny's, TGI Fridays, they all have red and yellow. You put a red and yellow golden arch in front of me. It's over for you. It's called the ketchup and mustard theory. Mm, Interesting. it, It increases people's appetite. All right. Okay, and then this is my last one. Um, the exact same food can taste different depending on the color of the plate it's served on. So there's a research mm. study that um, where hot chocolate was served in different color mugs, white, cream, red, and orange. And across the board, the chocolate in the orange and cream colored mugs were considered better tasting than the other two, even though it was the same. Interesting. I feel like, <clears throat> yeah, those subliminal things that you're not necessarily paying attention to, but like getting served on like a black plate. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Something about that feels stressful to me rather than like just like a cream or white plate or something. Interesting. I like a black plate. Aesthetically, black plates are very nice. But I mean, looking at your food on a black plate, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Well, Teach their own. That's colors for you, isn't it? Wow. It's, I found like the first part like so interesting, though, the language. I yeah. mean, then it, it got like very complicated. And I'm like, all right, I, I can't. <laughs> This is, yeah, like, yeah, too yeah. much. No, for I'm sure. Not a linguist, but... <laughs> yeah. Color theory is very cool. Yeah. Hmm. Well, we're green gals, and no one can stop us. Nobody can stop us. Tell um, us what your favorite colors are, folks. Yeah. Please, let us know. Um, you can find us on Twitter at The Good Eve Girls. Or Instagram at The Good Evening Girls. Or TikTok at The Good Eve Girls. Come on down. Stick around. Uh, and until next time, keep curious. And by the time you listen to this episode, we will already have seen Kat. So. And we will have already fought each other on the hard battlefield that is Learned League. Mm-hmm. So stay so tuned. We'll give you updates next week. We will. Um, but thanks for listening, everyone. Yes, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye.